a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I am uh, here to facilitate another session of wrong think. I'm not asking you to just dip your feet in it or just, you know, dabble in it. I'm asking you to revel in wrong think, challenging the narratives, boldly claiming your own worldview and asserting the sovereignty over your own mind that is your right as a free man or woman. So thanks again for joining us. And I, I got to admit, I'm going to tell you right up front, I've got some fairly heavy stuff I'm going to be talking about today. It could conceivably, uh, well, it, it could it could be difficult. There's some crazy stuff happening. So I'm, I'm just going to warn you up front. So some of this is going to be a little more weighty, not quite as carefree and lighthearted as perhaps other, other topics. But I think this is some of the most important information that I was able to pull together. And, and I, I think it's worth sharing. Not so much to, to put you in a state of fear or otherwise get you agitated, but to, to help you better understand that, yeah, the, the stakes are, are definitely getting higher as we go. And that means that uh, the responsibility that falls on our shoulders is, is getting uh, heavier as well. Now, before I dive into this, though, I got to take a minute here. And I want to honor a, a good friend who, who passed away just, uh, I guess this was July 24th. And that was, uh, that's my friend Dan Murphy. Now, my, my listeners in St. George, Utah, will recognize Dan from his uh, Last Call radio show, which I was actually, I'm really honored. I was the program director at that time on, uh, on KDXU and uh, was, was very honored when Dan came to me and said, hey, I would really love to... Uh, to do this show about uh, alcoholism and recovery and, um, you know, substance abuse and, and addiction. And it was marvelous. And when Dan told me his story, you know, he, uh, he himself had, I think, 36 years of recovery. So, I mean, the guy, he walked the walk. He knew what he was talking about. But he was just a great individual. And I believe he probably helped uh, thousands of people find their way and and sort things out from some some really challenging circumstances. So I just ha- I have to honor Dan and those of you who are are listening in southern Utah you'll you'll probably remember his familiar voice and uh, just just his great sense of humor. Wonderful wonderful guy. I'm sad to see that uh, that Dan has has graduated if you will from this life but uh Grateful for the influence that, that he wielded while he was here. And I think there's there's a great story there of, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you have had rough patches or if you have, uh, if you've made mistakes in your life. I think the, the beauty of, of people like Dan is that they, they show that redemption is not only possible, but it's possible to bless the lives of countless other people. Sometimes because of the hardships that, that you have been through yourself. So, a tip of the hat and, uh, you know, uh, honoring Dan Murphy and, and his uh, radio show Last Call. Sad to, to, to hear that he had passed away. 
All right, let's let's begin. There's oh man, there's just so much going on here. There are a couple things I wanted to talk about just right off off the bat. I know uh, more indictments dropped against Trump yesterday, and uh, look. I don't follow politics so close. I, I would not count myself as one of those, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just watching everything. What, is, what are they doing to our former president? I'm not a, a MAGA hat wearing, you know, Trump at any cost supporter. But what I see happening to me is very alarming. Not because, you know, Trump is the only president who ever made any sense. I like how the, there's a, there's a, what do you call it? It's not Twitter anymore, but there's, there's a poster on the social media formerly known as Twitter, who goes by the name Martyr Maid. This is what this person had to say. There's no coming back from the Democrats' weaponization of the federal justice system. They've crossed the Rubicon, and there's no way to cut the rot within the bounds of constitutional action. They rig elections, spy on opposing campaigns on falsified grounds, cover up their own brazen corruption while indicting their opponents on novel interpretations of the law, send their packs of black-masked drug addicts and sex criminals to burn down cities, and if you don't like it and try to protest, one of their thugs will execute an unarmed woman on camera and be awarded a medal for valor. There's no peaceful solution to this. And so the advice Martyr Maid gives, gives is focus on your states and local communities, elect people who aren't interested in moving up to the federal level, and just take it to heart that the U.S. federal government is a hostile, predatory regime that deserves not one ounce of your loyalty. I did tell you I was going to be covering some pretty heavy stuff. Okay. Well, there it is. <laughs> that's that's a good part of it. Now, I also like the the take that Jordan Schachtel had on this same thing because um, this is a little more pragmatic, but uh, but I agree with this take. Jordan says, I can't bring myself to get all fired up about the indictments. It must be what it was like living in the USSR and consuming state propaganda. You're just like, eh, the regime is illegitimate. We need not worry about things we cannot control. But it's this last line that really stood out to me, and that is, Save the outrage. Focus on solutions. Now, I think that's very good advice. I think a lot of the outrage that that is being generated, I think is calculated to try to push someone, anybody, into uh, taking some kind of violent action or otherwise reacting in such a way that, you know, see, this is why we have to clamp down. This is why we need to punish dissent and why we need to, you know, put put them all in camps or whatever, whatever the plan may be. Focus on solutions. And those solutions don't necessarily involve pitchforks or torches. Those solutions involve creating distance between yourself and those who want to rule you. Now, I understand there are, there are ways that they can attach themselves to your life like so many parasites. And it's, it's very difficult, especially with, uh, with the financial systems that we live under, with the taxation system that we live under. Yeah, they're, they're like little vampires and will try to follow you into everything that you do. And yet, if you're determined, you can still, in large part, if not, you know, you can't do it totally, but in large part, you can withdraw your consent. You can personally secede from those individuals and those institutions that are trying to rule you. They're afraid of this, and we're actually going to talk more about this um, in an essay that I'm going to share with you in just a few minutes. It's about how, 
You know, the, the scapegoat right now for both the, the Republicans and for the Democrats are individuals who love personal freedom and who love liberty. In my home state of Idaho, you know, the, the code word is, well, they're extremists. Anybody who stands up for, you know, limited government, anybody who stands up for God-given rights, that's extreme language. That's just, that's some kind of weird constitutional interpretation, you know. I mean, they, they make up all kinds of uh, pseudo-scientific or pseudo-political uh, science-sounding labels for it. But if you're a person who is really committed to claiming, using, and defending your rights... I mean, I shouldn't have to tell you this, but you're on the right side of history. Your conscience can be at peace, even though there are people trying to tell you you are crazy for trying to do this and you are absolutely out of step with what the rest of society wants. The Borg wants you to do this and you will not assimilate. Therefore, you're a bad person. No, you're not. You may feel very alone. I think that's kind of common right now for for people who truly love personal freedom. Just because you're standing alone or just because you seem to be the, the lone voice in the wilderness, it doesn't mean that you're wrong. I think of a quote, and I'm, I'm going to get this imperfectly, but this was from uh, Ezra Taft Benson. He was uh, the head of the LDS church for, for quite some time uh, back in the 1980s and early 90s. He was uh, the secretary of agriculture, I believe, under at least, I think it was it may have been the Eisenhower administration. Uh, nonetheless, he made the comment that when a man stands for freedom, he stands with God. And even if he stands alone, he still stands with God. Now, some people think that's a really radical way to say things. Oh, what is this, some kind of theocracy you're trying to impose here? No. It's, it's actually a very humble recognition that God is the author of freedom, that liberty is one of the greatest gifts that he has given to his children. And it's one of those gifts that I think a lot of people take for granted or they, they don't recognize the value of it until they have squandered the majority of what was given to them. And too late they realize that it's a gift that not everybody can handle. Not everybody is fit for freedom because they will abuse it or they'll just squander it or they'll just give it away in search of security instead. So if you're one of those people who understands it and who holds it dear, I would echo Ezra Taft Benson. You stand with God. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's dive right into some of the important stuff that I wanted to share with you today. Not that the last segment was uh, not important. It was just I kind of got on a roll and, well, couldn't stop myself. So uh, I came across this article yesterday. This is from freethepeople.org. A wonderful resource, by the way, for the Liberty Curious. I like how they put that. Um, This is from Logan Albright. It's called Liberty, the Universal Scapegoat. Logan Albright says society is plagued with a multitude of various ills. Maybe you've noticed. And when confronted with a problem, the most natural thing for we mere mortals to do is not to solve it, but rather to find someone to blame. Scapegoating is a concept so deeply ingrained in the human psyche that we can trace it back thousands of years. 
at which point it even had a magical and, and religious significance. According to tradition, the evils of a community were symbolically loaded onto the back of a helpless beast who would then be driven out of town, supposedly taking bad fortune with it. Nowadays, we need no such ceremony in order to heap blame where it doesn't belong. Thanks to the magic of social media, we can just say things and hope no one calls us on them. Now, there's certainly plenty of blame to go around for a struggling economy, a lack of social, so, social cohesion, and the legion of psychological problems afflicting young Americans. And ordinarily, we can see the finger-pointing doled out in a predictably partisan and tribal way. Democrats blame Republicans, Republicans blame Democrats, Trump supporters blame the Biden administration, and Biden's, well, I don't know that he has any actual supporters, but the people who prefer him to the 45th president aim their rhetoric at the basket of deplorables who voted for him. Now, this is all very boring and repetitive, and yet there is one target of scapegoating that I routinely see brought up by members of both parties. Personal freedom. Now, if you've been following politics for the last couple of decades, you may be under the impression that liberty is an entirely partisan issue. After all, we were told for years that the very word freedom was a far-right dog whistle used to disguise fascism, racism, and homophobia. Opponents of gun control are mocked for valuing the freedom to bear arms. Advocates for lower taxes are criticized for placing their selfish personal freedom above the social contract and the needs of the poor. During the pandemic, the almost universally right-of-center critics of lockdowns were accused of killing grandma, with Arnold Schwarzenegger memorably shouting, Screw your freedoms! at those who didn't want to wear face masks. But the left doesn't have a monopoly on demonizing freedom. In recent years, the political landscape has seen a rise in right-wing populism, an ideology that stresses tradition, family, nationalism, and most importantly, a belief that the members of society should serve a collective rather than an individual purpose. Logan Albright says, A while back, I pointed out that Jordan Peterson, a darling of the new right, criticized the idea that individual autonomy is a higher good, and that Senator Josh Hawley, the poster boy for national conservatism, agreed with him adding that serving others was a more important goal. Well, this week he says, I was dismayed to see that these attitudes have continued to gain traction, as I happened upon a clip of Louise Perry, columnist for the New Statesman and the Daily Mail, saying that the real problem with radical feminism is that it's an ideology that prioritizes freedom above absolutely everything else. Now, he says, I could go on at some length about the issues I have with radical feminism, but the claim that feminists simply value freedom too highly is one that would never have occurred to me in a thousand years. I mean, we're talking about an ideology that demands quotas and mandates to make sure women are equally represented in business and government, and which actively opposes personal choices for women who, for example, prefer raising children to running a Fortune 500 company or hearing cases on the Supreme Court. He says Perry's comment is perhaps a minor one, but it points to a trend I've been noticing for some time. Too much freedom has become a universal diagnosis for just about every social ill, as viewed from both the left and right wings of politics. Of course, it can't be the case that both progressives and conservatives care too much about freedom. If that were actually the case, we would doubtly see a, see a society bent on repealing laws, lowering taxes, and empowering individuals to live their best lives instead of one which requires a license to perform roughly a third of all jobs and which has so many rules and regulations that most of us commit an average of three felonies a day without realizing it. A world that actually prioritized liberty, 
probably wouldn't have spent two years banning people from operating their businesses, preventing them from leaving their homes, demanding universal injections of a new drug, and censoring anyone who dared express an unpopular opinion. He says there are no libertarians in Congress or in the White House. Hollywood and the news media are run by authoritarians. Academia is almost wholly captured by technocrats, and big business is more concerned with maximizing their DEI scores than with promoting anything close to personal liberty. Principled defenders of freedom have virtually no power in modern society. So why have they become the boogeyman for both left and right alike? Logan Albright says, The only answer I can think of is that despite their overwhelming advantage on practically every front, the authoritarians feel threatened. He says, People fear what they can't control. The world is a big, complicated, and scary place, and it's easy for the individual to feel overwhelmed by the forces around them. It is therefore natural for those insecure of their own position to resent the chaotic unpredictability of their fellow human beings and to seek to rein them in. He says, I think it's reasonable to understand these persistent attacks on liberty as a manifestation of fear. And while it can be discouraging to see such hostility coming from all sides, the very fact that this fear exists to the point that it motivates action and rhetoric should be a source of hope. Now hear him out. He says, if the authoritarians feel so insecure that they have to devote significant energy towards opposing freedom, it may mean that we have more power than we realize. It's long been a truism that if the Democrats and Republicans agree on something, it must be a bad idea. At the very least, we can take comfort in the fact that in order for our ideas to attract such universal vitriol, they must be pretty near the mark. I know that may seem like kind of a roundabout way to, to get to some good news, but that does sound like good news. Why would we need to censor these ideas that are counted as misinformation that the fact checkers are so easily, you know, you know, trying to clarify every time you post something or share something on social media? I think about this, uh, you know, when, when someone, uh, there's, there's a journalist that I've started to follow here in Idaho. His name is Casey Whalen. Really, a great investigative journalist. This guy is covering stuff that, that just puts the, the corporate media to shame. And someone made a comment the other day, well, pfft, the reason your ideas aren't more widely published is because they're just BS. That's all they are. As if, you know, this is self-evident. Anybody could see that what you're saying is just, you know, it's a load of fertilizer. And yet I thought to myself, if that were really the, the case, if it was so self-evident, this guy is just full of garbage and there's nothing to, you know, the stuff he's reporting. I promise you the individual who was heaping all that vitriol on him would not have felt the need to respond. That individual was clearly threatened by the idea that, oh, hey, you know, somebody might encounter this and they might actually you know, start to believe it. So think about that. If the authoritarians feel so insecure that they have to devote significant energy towards opposing freedom, then it means we have more power than we realize. And by the way, they don't, they don't understand... The power that we have is not uh, we're going to go out and fight them in the streets. We're going to take them on head on and conquer them. They will kneel before us and, and proclaim the superiority of our ideology. No, no, it's something much more simple than that. So simple, in fact, that an 18-year-old by the name of Etienne Delaboite figured this out back in the 1500s. If you're feeling ambitious, you should Google up the Discourse on Voluntary Servitude, written by an 18-year-old Frenchman, 
but, uh, but a timeless classic that illustrates that no one can have authority over you unless you agree to give them that authority. And what Delaboiti was uh, describing is simply, you don't have to go out and fight the tyrant head on. All you've got to do is learn how to withdraw your support, to turn your back on that supposed authority and watch them collapse under their own weight. Yeah, it takes a little while for it to reach that tipping point, but when enough people stop obeying, it's not anarchy. (laughs) It's just an end to that particular authoritarian or tyrant's power. But the first thing you have to realize is that you have the power to either give or withhold your consent. Maybe that's something we should take just a little more seriously. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a very quick shout out to my sponsors as I do each time I do this program. They include ClimbingUpward.com. By the way, uh, Dr. John Pulver will be on tomorrow's show. Also, TMCPNation.com, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. So, I don't know if you've noticed, but the fight over school choice has been largely driven by resistance to the introduction of woke ideology and indoctrination in our government schools. And it's funny because the proponents of that woke ideology insist, it's not being taught, it's not being taught, but if it was, it would be a good thing. <laughs> so they want to have it both ways, but um, there's, there's a dark side to this. And actually, Brandon Smith, writing for alt-market.us, says the next generation is being groomed for destruction. And he describes why they are vulnerable. He says, this past week, the National Education Association, the largest teachers union in the U.S., issued guidance on the use of leftist activist symbols in public school classrooms. So as part of their advice to teachers, they recommended violating district and state rules and hanging such items as pride flags and BLM flags. This is generally cited as a means to start a conversation, a way for teachers to circumvent school rules. Now, they might not be able to spend each day spinning lessons on woke concepts, but if a child asks a question about the flags in the room, then they can provide context. Now, he says the NEA has been one of the primary driving forces behind the intrusion of woke ideology into the public school setting. Around 97% of their political fundraising goes towards Democrat candidates. They seem to be obsessed with the grooming of children into the leftist fold with lessons focused on critical race theory, gender-fluid propaganda, and socialism. So if you want to know where the sudden surge in social justice cultism came from in terms of America's kids, leftist teachers in the NEA are to blame. Now, Brandon says, keep in mind that the teachers' unions are encouraging their members to break the law and lose their jobs just to double down on political indoctrination. Contrary to popular belief, teachers do not have free speech rights while at work. Woke teachers might fantasize about being Robin Williams in Dead Poet Society fighting against the system, but the truth is they are the system. There are numerous reasons why rules for teacher behavior are necessary. Narcissistic teachers are parasites that view the classroom as a place where they are owed affirmation. They see the children in their class as a captive audience that they can feed off of to gain attention, admiration, and justification. 
They look down on parents as inferiors and treat students as their own personal puppets for molding and controlling. In their minds, the kids don't belong to the parents. The kids belong to society. Progressive educators see themselves as the benevolent shepherds chosen by the collective to condition the minds of the next generation. Teaching academics is secondary. Manufacturing new leftist recruits is more important to them. This is the hill they've chosen to die on, and they will not back away from it. They've made it clear that the targeting of children is their paramount concern. Now, to be sure, the woke cult is losing steam lately. Even the kids are starting to fight back against it, with the largest spike in conservatism among high school boys that the U.S. has seen in a long time. They're getting fed up. But there is definitely good reason why leftists are implementing psychological warfare against America's youth. So he says, let's examine what I think are the top three reasons. Number one, young people are most economically vulnerable. He says, the left relies on exploitation of economic disparity in order to maintain power. The better the national financial situation is, the less leverage they have to keep the population in line. So they rail against issues like class inequality all the time, but really the greater the wealth gap, the more power leftists often have. Gen Z, for example, has been thoroughly sold since childhood on the idea that they were born into a time of historic economic despair that generations before them never had to deal with. Now, many of these kids are in their 20s and just exited college only to discover they have a useless degree in a field with low employment prospects. And on top of that, they owe tens of thousands of dollars in student loans, and they feel like they've been conned, and in a way, they were. They were fed a narrative which tells them that once you hit adulthood, you're entitled to a living wage and solid career prospects, and that a college degree is a golden ticket to prosperity. They think that they're supposed to jump into home ownership quickly, and that life simply adjusts to their needs. They think that this is how it was for baby boomers and Gen X, and that they've been handed the meager leftovers of a more prosperous era that previous generations squandered. But he says this is nonsense. The fact is, young people from every generation are economically vulnerable simply because they have zero or near zero life experience. They've had no time to accumulate savings and property. Most people in their 20s don't jump right into a career and a home or even a livable wage. Every single generation had to deal with financial strife. Gen Z is not special. What about inflation? What about economic crisis? Yes, there are numerous fiscal threats prevailing over the past several years. And stagflation is making life difficult for everyone, not just the young. But he points out these conditions are not unprecedented, though. Baby boomers and Gen X saw a decade-long stagflationary crisis through the 70s and early 80s, along with the Vietnam War. He says, my own grandfather lost millions in his freight business due to exploding interest rates in the early 1980s. The greatest generation dealt with the Great Depression, World War I, World War II, and the Korean War. Young people today need to get a grip on reality and understand that they don't know what a true struggle is, at least not yet. So at bottom, some of us are born into times of uncertainty. Previous generations sought to rise to the challenge. Gen Z and the millennials are the first generations to suggest that they're owed recompense for their discomfort. Now, this isn't an attempt to diminish their problems, just to put those problems in historic perspective. Leftists use predatory tactics to lure the young in with claims that their lives are unfair, but the fact is, life is unfair, and it always will be. You don't go into the working world with no skills and no experience and a worthless college degree expecting to become an immediate success. You live paycheck to paycheck, grow as a person, and eventually find your niche. 
And if you're smart, resourceful, responsible, and you're willing to put in the effort, you will find a way. And if not, well, then you don't deserve prosperity. Okay, second point. Reason number two, young adults are driven by sex and impulse, not accomplishment. Now, he says, I should specify that young people in the Western world are sexually oriented more than accomplishment oriented. In many other societies, the young are pushed to strive for personal success before pursuing relationships, marriage, or sex. In the West, sex is purely recreational and is the driving force for teens, 20-somethings and 30-somethings, specifically sex without consequences. And he says, I suspect this is why American innovation, work ethic, and academic excellence have been on a perpetual downslide. Technology has taken up some of the slack in terms of productivity, but the newest generations seem to be the most unimpressive in terms of ambition and excellence. There will be no Albert Einstein or Richard Feynman or Kurt Godel or Nikola Tesla or even a Steve Wozniak produced by Gen Z. They're too preoccupied with being victims and getting their rocks off. Now, the political left is eminently aware of this dynamic. They know that the minds of young people are easily distracted with thoughts of sexual revolution, generally because they think it means more easy access to sex without responsibility. Teens and young adults are more likely to support sexualized policies for this reason. And not surprisingly, they're more likely to support abortion. Leftists know that sex sells and making it easy for people to kill off unwanted pregnancies is one way to sell sex. The interesting thing that's happening lately, though, is that the political left is growing more and more hostile to straight sex. Free love for everyone used to be the progressive mantra, but not anymore. Masculinity is now admonished as predatory, and women are encouraged to treat male advances as a threat. The left is systematically desexualizing straight people, and at the same time, they're hypersexualizing LGBT people to the point that pride parades are applauded for grotesque displays in the streets in front of children. Young straight men entering, are entering into a dating world which tells them they have no interest in trans, if they have no interest in trans women, they are bigoted and evil. See, the goal is to maneuver young people into the LGBT fold where the only, it's the only place where sexual freedom is accepted. And as long as you don't want kids or you can't have kids, the leftist establishment is happy to promote a world without restraint. The woke talk often of freedom, but what they really mean is hedonism. The pursuit of pleasure at the expense of conscience and moral compass. Now, reason number three is that young people are desperate to find meaning. This one takes a little more unpacking, so I'm going to carry this over into the next segment. He says, for those who that can remember back to their teens and 20s, it's common to be obsessed with personal destiny, destiny rather, almost as much as sex. In Western society, a lot of value is placed on celebrity as well as social legacy. Everyone has dreams of being well-known, well-liked, leading a movement that changes things for the better, making their mark. The truth is, statistically speaking, the vast majority of people will do very little to make a mark on the world, at least in the way they imagine. I don't know if that uh, rings a bell with you, but uh, that one struck home. I mean, I'm in my 50s and I still wonder... Have I made any kind of a difference? Am I making any kind of a difference? By the way, that's a rhetorical question. So, your your reassuring emails, while appreciated, are not are not necessary. I'm not having an existential crisis, but uh, we'll come back to uh, what these young people are facing. 
and how they are being programmed for destruction. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, if you would like to subscribe to my show notes, it will not cost you anything. All you got to give me is your email address, which I will hold sacred. I will not share it or give it or sell it to anybody. All you need to do is go to thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on show notes down at the bottom of the page. You will notice a uh, subscribe button. Give me your email address. I'll drop you a copy of my show notes every day that I do the show. That's where you'll find great articles like the one I'm sharing from Brandon Smith about how the next generation is being groomed for destruction, and here's why they're vulnerable. Now, he gives three very good reasons why they're vulnerable. Young people are the most economically vulnerable. Number two, they're desperate, to, or um, number two, rather, they are driven by sex and impulse rather than accomplishment. Number three is they are desperate to find meaning. This one really hit home. He says, probably one of the most terrifying realizations for a per- the average person in their teens and 20s is the fact that they are not special. They're not born with a built-in greatness, and they're not fated for Messiah status. If they want to do something extraordinary as individuals, they will have to work hard for it. In fact, most people that do great things are not necessarily smarter than the common citizen. They just put in the work that others refuse to do. And then there are those that cut corners. The allure of instant purpose and instant attention has never been more powerful than it is today in the digital age. Rebels without a cause used to be isolated from each other and thus less inclined to do anything stupid. Now these people are connected to each other within microseconds and can organize into mindless mobs at the drop of a hat. So his point is leftists to make finding a purpose easy. You don't have to accomplish anything. You don't have to struggle or persevere. You don't have to be creative or inventive. You don't have to compete or climb to the top of the heap. All you have to do is destroy. All you have to do is stand on top of structures that other people built and burn them to the ground. That's it. It's simple. A political movement with no shame is a difficult movement to defeat. If only because right and wrong are no longer a factor in participation. When justification is based on subjective feelings, impulse and self-aggrandizement rather than reason and conscience, there is no way to dissuade those activists from their goals. When destruction is the only ideal, diplomacy and debate are unthinkable. It's like trying to negotiate with a time bomb or, or a brain tumor. He says destruction is the easiest motivation for a movement. Creation and conservation are hard. Leftists know that the young are not inclined to ponder 10 moves ahead on the chessboard. They would rather throw the chessboard to the ground and then strut around like they won the game. The problem is, if meaning is only found in derailing and burning, and legacy is only found in vanity, then the arson must continue into infinity. What happens when there's nothing left to destroy? There are only two possible outcomes. The leftists in their blind fervor go on to destroy each other, or... The establishment tricks the next generation into constructing their own gulag. He says the latter seems to be the end game for progressive elites and globalists. Use useful young idiots as a, as a weapon to forcibly introduce massive social upheaval, then lock them up in a slave camp and call it utopia. Okay, one thing you got to say about uh, Brandon Smith, that guy doesn't pull his punches. 
Again, I would invite you to check out his article in today's show notes. This is for August 3rd, 2023 at the Show.com. Couple of real quick articles I'm going to take note of here. Uh, Fear is a useful tool in the hands of activists. Got a great article here from Laura Dodsworth explaining how the green agenda is fueled by fear as climate alarmists try to terrify us into changing our behavior. And the other one is from Doug Casey. And it's, uh, this is really a great, uh, a great, it's called The Collapse of American Cities. And Doug Casey makes a very strong case that the ongoing deterioration of large cities may be a signal that it's time to relocate. In fact, I want to share a really quick excerpt from this. I, uh, I'm, I'm speaking from a, a relatively rural area of southern Idaho. Moved back here a couple of years ago after being away for roughly 25 years. And look, I, I hope this doesn't come off as a flex or as a boast, but the peace of mind that I feel is really hard to, to describe. My wife and I were just talking about this last night. We were driving home from visiting family uh, just across the valley and looking at this incredible sunset. And she said, you know, there is just something about Idaho that is so calming to my soul. And it's not just the beautiful sunsets. It's, it's these large expanses of fields, the sprinklers going as the sun is going down, the smells of freshly cut hay and well, sometimes the cows, <laughs> depending on which way the wind is blowing and where the dairy's located. But there's also a sense of peace and safety. And I'm not saying that and we would be spared from any upheaval that happens elsewhere in the world. We're vulnerable as well, but not as vulnerable as people in cities. And, and in this case, Doug Casey says, well, he says, you know, if, if, you were to, if I were to recommend where people consider living, he says, I would not say the suburbs. They used to be a good alternative that allowed some space, some sunshine, and the advantages of a rural environment. And by the way, he's talking about this in the context that the cities are deteriorating. And where once cities were synonymous with civilization, when cities deteriorate, so does civilization. But he says, if you're going to get out of the city, which I think a lot of people are considering at this point because they can see the writing on the wall, forget the suburbs. Doug Casey says it's best to head for small towns, especially those in red states. If you narrow the focus further, choose a small town on a body of water, the ocean, a river, or a lake, preferably with mountains nearby. Those things make them more recreation-oriented, more pleasant and amenable, drawing economically successful people. California was perfect 75 years ago, but as they say, that was then, and this is now. It's a different world. So I really hope, uh, I hope that doesn't sound so much like fear-mongering. But if, you, if you've taken a look around, I mean, the, the, the video that was making the rounds yesterday, this was a, a little convenience store, I guess, in New York City. And it was run by, I guess, I'm going to guess that they were Sikh individuals. And uh, this guy comes in, he's got a mask up, and he's, you know, he's looting the store. He came, came in literally with a trash can and is just stripping cigarettes off the shelf into it. And you can hear bystanders saying, oh, now, don't do nothing, don't do nothing, it ain't worth it. Just let him, you guys have insurance, right? Just let him do it, just let him do it. Well, you know, the guy, the guy who's looting the cigarettes keeps pulling a knife out of his back pocket and threatening, don't get too close, don't get too close. He's looting away like, I'm, I'm just going to do this with impunity. I mean, in California, you don't even have to run away anymore. It's not even considered a crime. But in New York, well, let's just say that because the state would not stand up for and protect these uh, business owners, these business owners, one of them comes forward and he's got a good stout staff 
I mean, it's like a shovel handle, only a little bit thicker. And he proceeds to beat the brakes off of this cigarette thing. I mean, he he put him on the ground with one or two whacks and then proceeded to give him what I could only describe as a good old-fashioned butt whooping. Probably comparable to a caning in Singapore. I mean, the guy is like screaming for mercy. So much so that even the people who were like, oh, now don't do anything. Don't you, don't you try anything here. You know, you just, just let him go. It's not worth it. They're standing back going, wow, that is a blank whooping. That's a real blank whooping right there. And I hope it doesn't sound barbaric, but that was actually kind of a Zen moment for me to finally see somebody stand up to and, and stop the nonsense and the, the, the just lawlessness. Sadly, I, I think that's going to be, you're going to see the pendulum swing back and it's probably going to snap back really hard. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing. What I'm saying is, if nobody else is going to stand up for you, then, then, you know, what alternative do you have but to stand up for yourself and your property? All right. Final note. This is our article of the day. I'm sharing with you the latest uh, blog entry from uh, Sasha Stone. And this is her take on Trump and the seeds of hysteria. What makes her take so worthwhile is she is a former Democrat and leftist who broke out of the bubble during the COVID madness. And she gives you a really keen timeline of the madness that started more than seven years ago with President Trump, starting with his election and, and from day one, even before he took office, you know, the left was, was at work trying to remove him from office or delegitimize his election. All of these charges, all these indictments that are being thrown at him. I mean, it's, look, what they're trying to do is everything they can to, to shut him down without actually having to assassinate him. It's a virtual assassination. But it's, it's hysterical. And Sasha Stone, I think, has, has a very reasoned and rational take on, on the irrationality of how our government has been weaponized and is engaging in open lawfare, not just against Trump, but against anybody who does not accept or support or, you know, basically bend the knee to them. Oh, we live in a very interesting time. And I can only suspect that, uh, that even more interesting developments are rapidly approaching. What they are, I can't guess. But I would say it's probably a good time to solidify the relationships in your life, get right with God, do what you can to be more self-sufficient, know who you are, know what you stand for, and do not yield. This is The Brian Hyde Show.